Welcome into Inside the Pylon, the podcast. This is our week five show, breaking down some of the major stories from the fifth week of NFL action. We're also going to be joined by a couple special guests today. Andy Guider from the Q5 is going to be joining us, as well as Daniel Syed from SyedSchemes.com. As always, though, joined by my partner in crime, Mark Schofield from InsideThePylon.com. And Mark, what'd you, uh, what was your initial takeaway from the weekend? Well, hello there, Mr. Zotta. Good to be with you as always. A uh, number of games kind of popped to mind. I mean, the Cincinnati-Seattle game is obviously a game that people had a lot of eyes on. I'm wondering if Cincinnati is finally for real, and maybe they answered that question this week. Yeah, and, and that was one game that I had actually been focused on heading into the weekend was that Bengals-Seahawks game and, and really seeing how that Bengals team performed. And the one thing that I come away with, and I'm not sure, maybe you can give me a little more clarity on this, is it almost seemed to me like Seattle gave that game away more than the Bengals won. And I know that's it's kind of cliche, and I almost feel bad saying it, but it really seemed like this that the Bengals should have been out of it. Now, I give them credit for capitalizing, but there's two sides to every story here. Yeah, that's true, and that's a fair point. But I think the, the interesting kind of retort to that is that that's a situation where good teams need to take advantage. You know, if, if your opponent makes some mistakes or kind of leaves the door open, yep. um, that's the difference between a good team and a great team. And in the past, Cincinnati and Andy Dalton in particular didn't take advantage when faced with those situations. But this week they did. They got themselves now to 5-0. and They've got a two-game lead now on the Steelers in that AFC North, which is a division that a lot of people thought was going to be a tough division in the AFC. But it's kind of looking like Cincinnati's. They're definitely in the driver's seat right now, especially the Ravens at 1-4 and now in that division. Now that Bengals team, if I'm right, they traveled to Buffalo this weekend, and that's, I think, a pretty tough matchup, a good defensive team on the road. Curious to see if Dalton and company can continue to put points on the board there because, obviously, look, they've done it to this point. Last couple weeks at home, they've put up 36 and 27 points. Uh, you know, they, they've pretty much the lowest point total they have all year is 24, so I'm very curious to see what Rex Ryan dials up in order to try to scheme against Andy Dalton. Any ideas what he'll look to do? I mean, first and first, you probably got to try to contain AJ Green somehow. Yeah, and, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, that's that's you know, that's probably job one. But you know what Rex likes to do? You know, he always likes to kind of dial up a pressure scheme. We see him; we've seen them do that for years. You know, going back to when he was with the Jets and how he would kind of attack Tom Brady, bring up some different pressure schemes: pressure on the interior, pressure on the edges, show some different looks pre-snap, have guys move it around pre-snap to try to confuse not just Dalton, not just the quarterback, but the offensive lineman as well, and maybe get you a free rusher either inside or off the edge. So I'd look for things like that this weekend when the Bengals do make that trip up to Buffalo. Yeah, now the the other game that I had really highlighted on my calendar from last week was that Rams-Packers tilt down at uh, or over at Lambeau. And I'll tell you, I watched watched about three quarters of the game live and then pretty much moved on just because it seemed to me, and I, I was wondering if the Rams were ready to take that jump and really put themselves into the conversation of potentially competing for an NFC title and it seems like they're still one or two pieces away particularly on offense I just I don't think they have quite enough firepower in terms of their skill position players I love love Todd Gurley by the way but I'm still I'm not sold on Nick Foles and I'm not so, sold on Nick Foles either yet in that offense I mean I think the thing with the Rams that stands out is again we've talked about it before but that defense is very impressive I mean Aaron Rodgers had that no interceptions at home streak 
and that got snapped in that game two times now in the second half. They they intercepted Rogers. Aaron Dotter looks to be a you know a force yeah. on the interior, getting yep. pressure off the snap, exploding off the snap on one player in particular that stopped an Eddie Lacy run in the backfield for no gain. But early third quarter, Green Bay they get the ball to start. Four play drive, four quick plays. Rogers goes right down the field, and a 14-10 game. You know, maybe the Rams can kind of hand around. Quickly becomes 21-10, and the game is pretty much over at that point. I agree with you as far as the St. Louis offense. I think they've got some skill positions. Just whether Foles can just do a better job in that offense will kind of determine whether the Rams really are contenders in the NFC or not. And I'll tell you, have you looked at uh, Ty Montgomery from the Packers at all? I have. I. I you know, I just actually literally just got done breaking down that game film from that game. You know, he looks it looks like Green Bay has something in Ty Montgomery. They're good at thoughts? they're good at drafting receivers, aren't they? It seems they're like they're really good at drafting receivers. I mean, we thought you know preseason when Jordy Nelson goes down, Devontae Adams has been banged up. There were some question marks about how Green Bay was going to be able to execute in the passing game, having to turn to some of their you know third, fourth, fifth options. Yep, they seem to be rolling. And again, it, like you just said, they bring in Ty Montgomery, and it looks to be another piece that they got through the draft that can step into that passing game and help Aaron Rodgers make plays down the field. Yeah, they really seem to do well in kind of that second to fourth round, finding receivers that, look, might have slipped through the cracks and aren't necessarily first round material for some reason, but able to contribute uh, in their system. It's it's something they do incredibly well and something I've always been impressed with. And uh, we're going to detour over now to, uh, again, our favorite segment of the week is the only segment of the week that actually has sponsorship here. And so I will kick it to Mark Schofield for our Harry Stamper Play of the Week, sponsored by NASA. Yes, as always, the Harry Stamper Play of the Week brought to you by NASA. NASA, we make things happen in the air. They always do, don't they? They always do. they always do. Now talk to me about, this is a guy who, look, he's been much maligned everywhere. I think you've probably even had a couple negative articles about him. Jay Cutler. That's right. You know, he's kind of an easy target. I mean, he, you know... Strong-armed quarterback can make a lot of throws at all levels, but makes some bad decisions with the football at times. But it was nice to be able to finally write something nice about him. And what was also enjoyable about this play in particular is, do you remember that movie, The Program? I love The Program. Love great The Program. Movie, great football movie. It's got James Kahn as the old head coach at what was it, Eastern State University, a team that looked very much like Florida State but wasn't quite the Seminoles. And Craig Sheffer, the quarterback that has an alcohol problem that needs rehab midseason. Alvin Mack. Alvin Mack, the great defense, the linebacker, all that great scene where he's breaking down the, the offensive fronts and his assignments. Hit the quarterback so hard his mama feels it. That's exactly right. You know, hit the tight end so hard his girlfriend dies, I think was another one. <laughs> but... There's a great scene, and I remember when I first saw this movie, there's a scene at the end where the team in question, the Eastern, the ESU Timberwolves, they need a win over Georgia Tech to save their bowl eligibility. Yep. And on the final play, Joe Kane, the quarterback, played by Craig Sheffer, has to make break like three tackles on the backfield and actually at one point fumbles the ball before he finds his freshman running back, Darnell Jefferson, played by Omar Epps in the end zone. And I thought to myself, the first time I saw that, I thought – there's no way that could ever happen. But well, it did. It's the end of the <laughs> Bears game. And the Bears, they're down five to the Chiefs on the road. There's 24 seconds left. They're facing a second and four in the red zone. Cutler comes out. They go empty backfield. Again, another kind of concept we've talked about. They 
put Matt Forte, their running back, in the slot to the left, and they run a little rub route with the receiver on the left. Wilson, he makes a little in cut. Now let me let me stop you there for one second. Actually, rub route. Okay, right. been a lot of talk this week about rub routes because we've seen quite a bit of pass interference on a rub route. You you, you play quarterback. You you knew how you tried to set up these routes. What is the difference, actually? Can you tell me, is there actually a difference between a rub route and a pick? Because I can't, I can't tell sometimes. Right. Well, you know, they're, they're kind of – they're very similar. And, you know, this play, rub route, pick route, you could, you'd almost interchange the two. Rub route is kind of when you run two receivers in the same zone, trying to get possibly the two defenders to kind of rub off of each other. Yep. And then the receiver comes off free, hopefully, from one of these two defenders getting knocked off their route. This play, is it's similar in that both guys were in the same zone. The receiver on the outside, Wilson, runs a quick end cut, breaking towards Hussein Abdullah, who's the safety down in the box over Forte. Forte delays for a second and runs a quick wheel. Yep. Now, that's, you know, they rub... That's a rub concept, but it's almost a pick. You could almost see if this were a basketball play when Wilson comes down on his in cut. You could almost see him kind of, you know, if it were a basketball play, he'd cringe up, protect himself, and let Abdullah run into him. But here he has to show the referees, one, that he's, you know, trying to make a play on the football and he's a potential receiver. But the other thing about this play that's interesting is he makes his break right at the one-yard mark. Yep. Under the rules, I looked at the rules before I wrote that article. You can <laughs> technically block a player within one yard of the line of scrimmage on a pass and play before the ball is in the air. Okay, so, so that's at so least you at least know at that least, that's clear, no matter what. Right. It's at least it seems legal within the spirit of how the rule is constructed. Now, I know you guys sometimes make me put my lawyer hat on. I don't like wearing the wire hat. We, you were, you were cute in it, man. You were great in that hat. I'll tell you that much. I'm, I'm tired of that hat. I didn't want to wear that hat anymore. That's why I'm here with you today, my friend. Well, uh-huh. certainly, certainly, you know, I, I love having you in the hat, but if you don't want to wear it, we're not going to make you wear it, okay? That's okay. I, I could do it as long as I'm interpreting football rules and not statutes. How about that? I, that- I can work with that. That is no problem for me. Excellent. We're going to move now to our first guest of the day. We're joined by Andy Guider from the Q5.com. And Andy... Pretty happy to have you on today. Glad you were able to join us. I know you're uh, you're West Coast, so this is early for you, right? It is early, but you actually only know the half of it. I I managed to find my way down to San Diego, so I was at that game last night. Oh, were you? I was, but I live in San Luis Obispo, so oh, I was uh, made my way back, and uh, I've actually already taught class this morning, where I had 200 uh, eager students looking at me. So it's been uh, been a nice little ride. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. Now, your site does it, you do some pretty innovative things in terms of trying to graphically represent a game and really show some of the trends throughout that game. Talk to us a little about you use the term game map, and, and I think it'd be interesting just to hear in your own words what exactly is a game map? What is that trying to show? So, well, game map was really born from the idea of, of trying to uh, present data through a visualization and represent really chronologically what happens in a football game. So if you if you really dissect what can happen on a drive, there's only about seven or eight things, you know, that are, that are possible outcomes. So if you look at those outcomes and you you know you, you create a timeline that marks you know where touchdowns occur, where field goals, missed field goals, turnover on down, you know, turnovers, and you. You know, you can uh, you can assign them to the different units. Obviously, offense, defense, and special teams. So, 
you know, by by working your way chronologically through the game, if you if you just leave out punts, because you know they're roughly about half of them will end in punts. So if you you know, if you leave that out or don't mark that, then all the other markers really you know show you where these you know where where these drives that um, you know have those different results occur, and then you know really beyond that, then I've I've added a you know a metric that's meant to evaluate the performance of these drives and you know looking at you know not just you know not just what happens on the scoreboard, but you know what the effect of is uh, you know of, of moving the ball fifty yards. Uh, you know, and the effect on field position, or the effect on scoring a touchdown, or or a field goal. Um, so you know, there's, there's there's a lot of information packed in it, um, but uh, really from just becoming calibrated and just oriented with it a little bit, then you can really get a a quick overview of a game really from just a glance, and then look deeper if if need be. When when you're evaluating a drive. Is there a difference in how you calculate the value of, say, a ten-play, fifty-yard drive from a five-play, fifty-yard drive? Right now, the the number of plays is not something that um, that I that I incorporate in the game map. You know, obviously, with all that data and with me being the one that you know wrote all the computer code to do it. Yep. You know, I can go back and look at those. You know, I can look at you know, yardage per play, you know, sort of, you know, this idea of explosive plays, you know, is, is you know, out in the industry and, and as a, a marker, you know, plays at a big chunks of yardage. And really what, what I'm doing is, is at the level of just the drive, it's just a matter of really how far the ball, you know, how far the ball moves and what the result is. So I'll, you know, I'll kind of give you a, like a quick example would be, you know, like a field goal, you know, if you were to take the ball 50 yards, let's say, and kick a field goal, you know, that's a, that's a successful drive, really, from a yardage point of view. And, you know, you, if you could do that enough times, you know, you need to get it in the end zone. But if you inherit the ball in really in, in outstanding field position, you know, on their side of the 50, let's say, and you and you go 20 yards and kick a field goal, really, from an offensive point of view, you've really failed because you, you, know, you, you had an opportunity with great field position, uh, you know, in a short field. So... Do you factor in at all uh, time of possession and time left in the game at all in terms of, I'm wondering, and we, we often hear that at the end of a half, you don't want to leave a team necessarily with, with too, much, uh, too much time there in order to, uh, you know, you really want to make sure they're not able to, to get the ball back and score. Is that something that is factored in here? And actually, I think we just lost Andy, so we're going to try to get him back on the line. Mark, have you had a chance to look through uh, any of Andy's work to this point? I have, and it's 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 really impressive stuff what he's done in terms of, especially with the game maps. Um, I, there's an article on Inside the Pollen right now uh, where I looked at Andre Ellington's 63-yard run um, for Arizona against Detroit in that game on Sunday, and I used um, one of Andy's game maps, that game map from that game, to show you that this was a very you might call almost an explosive play, a 63-yard touchdown run. It wasn't even the most successful player drive that Arizona had during that game. Yep. You know, yep. They had some you know, much more impressive drives in Andy's calculus. Uh, they, were, they, had, they ripped off two quick scores right near the end of the first half, yep. uh, a short touchdown run and a short touchdown pass that were much more impactful on how the game turned out. Yeah, and I think we actually – Andy, I think we have you back on the line. Is that right? 
I'm back. Sorry about that. No problem at all. Understandable. I know that the telephone infrastructure in this country is just terrible sometimes, isn't it? You know, it is. I'm <laughs> up with my, with my phone. So hopefully we will keep this thing on the straight here. Absolutely. Before, uh, before we lost you, one thing I was interested in is we hear a lot of times that at the end of a half in particular, you don't want to leave a team with too much time uh, so simply to avoid having an opportunity for them to put a drive uh, on the board, and it appears that we actually just lost Andy again. So I think that apparently that question just doesn't want to be. Uh, I guess not. The, the someone I, I don't know if the NSA is involved in this, but they don't want that information coming across the line, Mark. So I think we're going to uh, quickly just segue into our next segment. Actually, unfortunately, uh, looks like we're going to have to cut that a bit short, and uh, we'll definitely try to get Andy back on for a future podcast, but. Mark, let's talk about some work that we've been doing also as well over at InsideThePylon.com. And in particular, we've been putting together this glossary. And right. and I think first and foremost, just you know, give our listeners, they may not have checked it out yet, they may not have clicked on that little glossary button, but what exactly have we been doing? What are we putting together? Right, well... You know, if you watch football on Sunday or on Saturday afternoons when you're watching the college game, you'll hear terms thrown about like post-pattern, Yankee concept, or bird dogging is another example, or, you know, cover two or things like that. Terms that, you know, you might not be familiar with. Even like myself, if you've played the game, watched the game for years, your entire life, you, hear, you might hear something new. So what we've done kind of, in, you know, we've done it in conjunction with the fine people over at the Scouting Academy with Dan Hatman. We're putting together sort of an illustrated visual glossary of all of these football terms that come up that you hear on a, a week and weekly basis um, where we kind of show you, okay, this is what cover two is. We'll show you a visual of it before the snap. We'll show you how it rotates, how players move from different zones as a play develops. So you get a sense of what that means. So the next time you hear it during a broadcast, or if you're a coach, if you're somebody who's a student at the scouting Academy, who's interested in getting into coaching or getting into player evaluation, you'll know the concepts to look for, the key things to look for, and you become a better student of the game. And if you're doing, trying to do this professionally, or if you're in the content generation business, the product that you turn out is a better product because you have a better understanding of the game. So what we're trying to do is just try to make people a little bit smarter about football. So talk to me, you said the term bird dogging, and I think, I mean, look, I love the sound of it first of all, but let's let's talk a little bit about what bird dogging actually is, because I've heard people say it, and I know that a lot of people probably have, and the first time I heard it, I'm sitting there, I'm going, what exactly are they talking about with regards to that? Can you, can you give our listeners a little bit of info about what that term is? Right, it's, it's a nice, artful sort of term, one of the more artful ones, I think, when it comes to sort of football terminology. And what it kind of stems from is, I don't know, I grew up with a beautiful Irish setter when I was a kid named Barnaby. And every once in a while, I'd be playing with him in the backyard, and he would just stop and freeze and almost point his entire body at something. And seconds later, you'd see some birds fly away. And it's just innate. Some hound dogs are kind of programmed to, when they're out on a hunt with hunters, and they're trying to track down birds, they will freeze and actually it's called pointing where they just stare at a bush or a tree or something to let the human they're working with know, hey, there are some birds there. And that's where this term kind of stems from. And it, it means it, talk, it relates to when a quarterback will take a snap and just immediately stare down a receiver. That's a term that sometimes people use where a quarterback will stare down a receiver. Say he's got a guy running an out route on his right. 
will take the snap and never looks anywhere else but then but at that one receiver on the right on that out route Ma- and he stares him down and a, a defender can cut under it and that's what they that's what bird dogging is mark you're a quarterback how do you train yourself to not do this Right. Well, one of the ways that I think coaches can kind of train a quarterback to avoid this is making sure they know how to read and diagnose coverage pre-snap as a play develops. And the easiest way to do that is to identify the free safety and read him first. Because if you get up over the center, if you get up over center, you see the free safety in the middle of the field, you might think single high safety, cover one, cover three. You see two safeties deep, and then you're thinking cover two. Um, so you read the safety, you kind of read the players in the middle of the field first, and then let your eyes move. So if you start in the middle and look out, work to the outside, you're not running the risk of staring down a receiver too much. But as we see and as we've you know been reading about recently with you know a lot of teams, especially at the college level, they don't trust the quarterbacks as much to make reads, to make decisions. They signal in the coverage or the fronts using those big, silly cardboard cutout signs from the sideline. If they're not doing that, then they're free to let their eyes wander. And if they're letting their eyes wander, you get a big third down and you really want to make sure you're making that throw on that out route. Maybe you find yourself staring down that player. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because we've heard quite a bit from talent evaluators saying that because college teams are essentially afraid to let their quarterback make mistakes in reading the defense on their own, you now have NFL teams that are trying to teach these kids how to read defenses for the first time, and that's just not what NFL teams are built to do. Right, and we got into this a little bit last week with Dan Hammond when he was talking about how you know, we raised that sort of, sort of question to him about the, quote, quarterback problem. And he said, well, you know, the, for too long, the NFL has basically used the NCAA as a minor league system. But the problem with, with that is that, you know, and I love to talk about the Tim Tebow-Urban Meyer example when this – always comes up and it always does but urban's Meyer, Meyer's job when he was at florida wasn't to get tim tebow ready to execute a five and seven step drop back passing game no it was to beat alabama it was to win the sec it was to compete for a national championship so if he could do that with tim tebow looking like a windmill back there and throwing jump ball passes on the goal line and if that would make him you know lead that team to wins then that's what he would do so I think what the NFL needs to really think hard about how they're handling quarterbacks now. And they need to be able to you know, have a quarterback come in and either be comfortable with what they can do in forcing that quarterback into their system or start to structure a system around what that quarterback was able to do in college. And you know, we talked with Matt Walpin last week about Marcus Mariota and how he's transitioned and Matt spoke at length about how, you know, the Tennessee Titans are kind of using some of the elements, the read option elements that Marcus Mariota ran at Oregon in their current system, something he's more familiar with, and it's able in him to make that transition perhaps a little bit quicker than some other quarterbacks have. Definitely, definitely. Now, we're about to move to our next guest, but before we do, Mark, I need to ask you one question, and I need you to be honest with me. Can you do Go that? Go ahead, man. Did you ever throw a jump pass? Um... Did I ever throw a jump pass in my failed basketball days? Perhaps once. <laughs> no, I, I I never threw a jump pass, but they may have 
some of my throws in my actual college and high school quarterbacking days maybe came out like jump passes. See, I have tiny hands, and it gets when it's raining, the ball just slips out, and you're making me. That's why I became. Sad, that's what, you're making me sad. That's why I became a kicker, man. That's why I became <laughs> a kicker. So we're gonna move now to our next guest, Dan Syed from SyedSchemes.com. Uh, we had Dan on last week. You can also follow him on Twitter at SyedSchemes. And Dan, appreciate you coming on with us. Hey, great to be on again. Absolutely. Now, I know uh, one game that piqued your interest as well as mine was that Seahawks-Bengals game, and I had kind of seen this as a pretty big measuring stick as far as, uh, you know, really what Cincinnati was going to be able to show here. From a schematic perspective, give me the breakdown of what stood out to you the most. Yeah, sure. So so I thought the Bengals game plan was very clear. Um, they threw the ball 45 times. I thought it was they wanted to attack Kerry Williams, which is kind of expected given Richard Sherman. But they also attacked Cam Chancellor in the passing game a lot more than I think uh, other teams have, and that was very interesting. So, you know, you turn on the film, the very first play of the game, there's three tight ends. A.J. Green is the only receiver. He motions across to, to isolate against Kerry Williams. And then, uh, you know, later he he runs some fades against Kerry Williams. So it it was very interesting to see that, and um, Hugh Jackson did a great job attacking Seattle's pattern match uh, schemes, and they, they used A.J. Green as a decoy very well because uh, it made Earl Thomas shade toward uh, A.J. Green, and it caused, it caused confusion on a few plays. On, on the opening drive, Marvin Jones had a huge completion, and then Tyler Eifert had two touchdowns on, uh, on actually the exact same play call. Yeah, and, and you look at this, and when you look at the numbers from this game and how it ended up playing out when it was all said and done, A.J. Green ends up getting targeted eight times out of 44 throws for Andy Dalton here. And when you look at that, he only had one other game, the San Diego game earlier this year, he had four, but he had been in double digits the last two games. And so clearly it looks like they were trying to use him in such a way in order to, uh, to really get other players open. Is that an accurate statement? Definitely. So, so I think early on the second drive, uh, AJ Green hits a fade against Kerry Williams, and then there was a 72-yard touchdown that gets called back for the holding. And then at that point, I think Pete Carroll, Chris Richard, is the Seattle defensive coordinator. They do something that they they, they rarely do. They switch Sherman to follow around AJ Green to an extent, and um, because they couldn't have Green beating Kerry Williams the entire day, and that and that worked for a bit uh, since he didn't get the matchups they wanted. Dalton held the ball a little longer. There were a couple sacks, and then uh, the half, the half time, right before halftime, Dalton threw a bad interception uh, when Sherman was uh, shading on Green's side as well. So it definitely did work, but uh, Cincinnati was able to adjust after the half for sure. Talk to me a little bit about Andy Dalton and what you've seen from him so far this year. I mean, it seems to me he's been one of the most controversial players in the league in his first five seasons now where – continuing to no one wants to quite move him out of that middle pack of quarterbacks but you look at him statistically this year and he appears to be making that jump is there anything from an execution standpoint that he's doing differently that points to that as well well I think some of it is definitely attributed to the coaching staff I think Hugh Jackson is doing a great job uh with him in the end it's on the player um Dalton made the perfect throw to Tyler Eifert on the corner route to set up over time, I thought he was patient reading coverages, and before the half, he threw a bad interception. He threw a late throw, but in the second half, you saw him learning from that mistake, 
uh, waiting for Seattle's coverage to unfold, hitting the right receivers. And then on the QB sneak for the touchdown, it was almost Brady-esque seeing him. Uh, the defensive linemen were very wide in double-three techniques. He checked the play, scored on a five-yard uh, quarterback sneak. And so that's, the knock on him was mental processing, uh, ability to kind of come back after making a, uh, a poor decision or poor play, and he's done that. So, you know, that's that's uh, that's Andy Dalton getting better in front of our eyes, I think. What about, I mean, we always know that football is a game of adjustments here. What about from the other side? What does Seattle have to do at this point to get themselves back on track? Because we see a team that had previously prided itself on its defense. Obviously, the first couple games this year, missing Chancellor, and that had an impact. But you look at a team now that's giving up about 20 points a game here, and and really, aside from that Bears game where they shut out the Bears, has looked vulnerable on the defensive side of the ball occasionally. Yeah, so so I think it's a combination of things. I don't think there are that many other teams that will be able to exploit these kind of matchups like Cincinnati does. I think that the way Cincinnati used uh, Eifert and A.J. Green, uh, they isolated Eifert against Cam or Kerry Williams in a different some formations like uh, – you know, they would run trips to one side and Eifert on the other side. Um, there's not that many teams that have an elite receiver and uh, a, a tight end that can be dominant. You know, you look at the way the Patriots last year in the Super Bowl kind of isolated matchups, but there's just not that many teams that can do it. So I think I think Seattle will be fine. One thing I was surprised about from Seattle was they have they often have they have aggressive penalties like holding or. Uh, you know, pass interference, try to play, play the ball. One penalty that really stood out to me was when Dalton threw the interception, Earl Thomas returned it all the way to the Cincy 30-yard line with a minute left in three timeouts. Michael Bennett gets a penalty for hitting the quarterback um, and excessively hitting Dalton after the interception, and they start on their own 18 instead, and that drive could have been a touchdown. That would That might cost them the game, so... Uh, that kind of mental mistake is something you don't see out of Seattle often. Daniel, I want to ask you a question about the Seattle offense now. Um, now they're two and three. They had the twenty-four-seven lead over Cincinnati, but then they they couldn't score again, and they actually punted twice in overtime. And looking at this game, what did you see from the Seattle offense and Russell Wilson that either has you hopeful that they might kind of you know turn things around, or has you a little bit concerned about what they're doing on the offensive side of the ball? So I think a, a couple things would be concerning is the the O line play has not been uh, not been great. I think Carlos Dunlap had a very very good second half against the right side of uh, Seattle's line, and uh, that's something that's definitely going to have to be fixed. And some people were critical of Daryl Bevel's play calling. I think in terms of predictability on those punt drives, he did go run run pass on each of those, but. You know, Seattle plays a simple scheme on both sides of the ball. I think it's about execution on the O-line. And also, I would like to see some more zone read uh, plays from Seattle. So on Thomas Rawls' big touchdown run, it wasn't a zone read play, but you see that Cincinnati's edge defender is really holding out um, for Russell Wilson on a bootleg. And that creates a huge cutback lane. Rawls takes it and, uh, and scores. And I think they really need to use Russell Wilson's run threat more. It'll help when Marshawn Lynch returns. And then, kind of stating the obvious, but I've never seen Jimmy Graham chip and go to the flat so many times. Um, really think that 
they need to be isolating him and using him vertical a little bit more. That said, they do need uh, help on the O-line, so it's a little bit of uh, of a catch-22 right now. I think they'll be fine going forward. The O-line is the biggest concern to me. Very good. Well, Dan, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, certainly we'll be checking back in with you in the future as well, all right? All right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That was Dan Syed from SyedSchemes.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at SyedSchemes. And, Mark, we, we had talked about that game last week. We had really previewed that as one of the, the big games that we were watching. Turning now to Week 6, where, where exactly are your eyes focused? Well, I, I think a lot of people have had the Sunday night game circled on their calendars for a long time now. And that's, of course, the matchup between the Indianapolis Colts and the New England Patriots. Obviously, we spent an entire offseason debating the air pressure of a football that was set in motion after that AFC championship game. Well, you could imagine what especially the Patriots fans would like to see happen during this Sunday night game. What are some games you're looking at? Well, I think that's definitely one of them that's on my list here. I think continuing down, I'm interested to see just if the the Lions can get off the schneid. They're 0-5 now against the Bears. They've got the Bears at home at least. Uh, curious to see if they can get off the schneid and start to get things moving a little bit there. I know in particular, when you look at this Lions team and how they've performed so far this year, biggest issue for them has been on the, the defensive side of the ball. They're giving up uh, over 25 points a game right now. They can't seem to stop anyone, really. Uh, the only team that they could kind of slow down was the Seahawks, and, and that Seahawks offense, as you mentioned earlier, has had some issues there. So, I'm interested to see if they can get anything going on the defensive side of the ball. And offensively, look, they've only scored about 16 points a game as well, so you'd like to see them be able to put one together, uh, and especially that Bears team, look, coming off a good win this week, but they have been vulnerable this year. Right, and you know, another thing for the Lions that they need to get going is their run game. I mean, they had in their, their season opening win over San Diego, Ramir Abdullah, the rookie from Nebraska, had some nice runs. But since then, they haven't been able to really generate much of anything on the ground. So that's another thing. I mean, they, there are a lot of issues that Detroit needs to fix right now. But run game, what they're doing defensively, you know, they need better play from Stafford. There's just a lot of question marks there. Another game we just talked about, Seattle Seahawks. You know, Carolina Panthers, Seattle Seahawks, they meet this weekend. It's a rematch from last year's NFC Divisional round. Those are two teams that have some history. I know we'll be looking at that game as well at InsideThePylon.com. Absolutely. And, Mark, are you going to be the one person watching the uh, the Titans again when they play the Dolphins this week? Um, I, I will probably have my eye on that game. You know, I, I love quarterbacks. I was a Marcus Mariota fan I, well, and a Jameis Winston fan, so I'm very curious to see how those guys do. So, yeah, I'll, I'll have one eye on that TV. Yeah, and, and, and personally, we had talked earlier uh, at the open of the show that Bengals-Bills game is going to be pretty good, too, just to see if they're able to go into you know pretty tough environment to play at up in Buffalo against a good defensive team and see if they can continue to string together, you know, again, they're putting almost 30 points a game on the board right now, that's going to be a very good test for them. And I, I wonder if they're going to be able to continue in that type of environment. Yeah, like you said, tough test. Always interested to see what interested in seeing what Rex Ryan does against an offense, so that will be fun. How about this one? Houston, Jacksonville. Um, that is – I'll DVR it. I'll DVR it maybe. Would you even waste DVR space on that game? Well, no. No, I, yeah. I probably I mean, wouldn't. I probably wouldn't. Um, I think, you know, you look at some of these other games that are in here. Chiefs-Vikings I'm not particularly excited about. Cardinal steelers could be good. 
that could be a good game. Cardinal Steelers might not game. be bad. I, I want to see, especially going into Heinz Field, if that Cardinals team can go in and, and, and look. You talk about a tough environment to play in. Heinz right. Field, not only for offenses and defenses, kickers, we know, hate Heinz Field due to that open end of the stadium with those swirling winds there. Right. And you have a team that, look, they beat the Lions last week, but they had lost previously to the Rams uh, 24-22 in week four. So you want to see if the Cardinals can go in against a decent team because – Keep in mind, their first three weeks, Saints, Bears, 49ers, there's not much of a test there. So going up against another pretty comp- – I won't say the Steelers are great, but I'll say they're a competitive team. Going up against that type of team, want to see what they can do on the road. Right, and you know, it's always been tough for West Coast teams to kind of come East and play that 1 p.m. start. You know, it's a tough little adjustment on the mind and body. West Coast teams have sometimes struggled in that time slot on the East Coast. So another – Interesting matchup to look at. One of the better matchups we've got this weekend, I think. Definitely, definitely. And, Mark, we're out of time for the week, so it looks like we got a jet again. But certainly, we'll be back next week to check in on everything. Isn't that right? Sounds great, my friend. Be well. All right. You can definitely check us out on InsideThePylon.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash InsideThePylon. Or like us on Facebook. That's what you do on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at ITPylon. We're out until next week. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield signing off.